privilege of being a pastor here at Cross of Grace. Um, we're going to open up God's Word now. So if you have a copy of God's Word, please open in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. And if you're new here, uh, we just want you to know the majority of our service every week uh, is given over to reading a passage from the Bible and explaining it and then explaining what it means to our lives. And so uh, this is a great place to learn more about what the Bible teaches. Uh, we happen to be in a series where we're going through one of the probably most well-known parts of the Bible, but least understood, which is the book of Revelation. Uh, and if you live through Y2K, that means nothing to Generation Z. But remember Y2K, everyone was in the book of Revelation, baby. It was like, here he comes. Uh, no, and then we're still here. So what does Revelation then mean? Well, uh, in our series of Revelation, we've decided to take the approach of an overview series of the book. And we do that because, in the words of Dennis Johnson, Dr. Johnson, one of the commentators we found helpful, he says, you, you can't understand the details of Revelation unless you understand the big picture. But you can't understand the big picture unless you understand some of the key details. So that's what we're trying to do in our study. We're, we're trying to hit kind of the biggest, most important parts of Revelation um, and, and not take three years to do this. Do it in a shorter time period so that you can make the connections and begin to see the book as a whole and then from there begin to dive into individual sections. So uh, we've been looking at the different threads in the book of Revelation. We've seen the sovereignty of God as one thread, the opposition of the world as one thread. And today we're picking up the thread of the church. As uh, turmoil erupts on the earth, as the four horsemen ride out into the earth, where is the church? What is the church to do? And that's what Revelation chapter 11 is concerned with. So we're going to read Revelation 11 verses 1 through 13. And as, as you find yourself, man, these images are strange. What does that mean? What does that mean? Just pause and try to let the, the whole picture. Apocalyptic literature is, is meant to paint a picture in your mind. So allow it to do that as we read Revelation 11, verse 1. This is God's word. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, Fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. 
For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. This is God's word, and Father, I pray that as we read, Lord, that you would allow Revelation to do what it is meant to do, to reveal. I pray that we would walk out of here with greater clarity after interacting with your word, not greater confusion. And I pray that the the clarity, God, would be on the path of the Christian and the church, that we may all feel the call of Christ, but also feel hope and faith and life in the call. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, on Mother's Day, I want to honor my mom uh, for instilling in me a love of reading. I began to be, I I struggled with reading early on in first grade, and then I began to be a voracious reader, so my mom would just feed me books. And one of the books uh, that I read in that that sort of age of uh, 10, 11, 12, as I was starting to get into reading, was the great Lord of the Rings trilogy, right? This is my mom's copy from, I think, the 1970s. It has an awesome picture of Tolkien with a pipe smiling on the back. And uh, in the book, here, here's what I found. It was a perfect thing for a 12-year-old boy because whenever you read these, these you know, fantasy magic stories, you're always looking for yourself. And so first time I read the books, I thought, man, the character I'm the most like or I want to be the most like is Aragorn, the secret king who comes and raises an army and goes back and you know, defeats everybody in Gondor and goes to the very black gates and you're like, yes. And then you start to realize like, okay, actually, I think the coolest character is Gandalf, the wise wizard who is out thinking and trying to outsmart the enemy. And then there's this bit, especially if you read this last book, where it's all action and excitement and then it stops and then it picks up with Frodo and Sam, two small hobbits, two small guys, walking and walking and walking. And they walk through marshes, unpleasant. They walk through mountains that are unpleasant. They walk through uh, gross other places that are even more unpleasant. And you're like, can we get back to the action here? What are we doing with these guys? And yet, as I've grown older, you start to realize, oh, wait a minute, they're, they're actually the heroes. They do the thing that nobody else can do. They take this ring of power and throw it into a volcano. Well, a lot of stuff happens at the volcano, but we're not going to get into. That's their task, to faithfully carry this difficult burden, to finish their task, despite a long, dark, difficult road. And as I've gotten older, I think that's probably more like us. That's at least more like me. In this passage today, we're going to see two witnesses who have a a difficult task and find themselves on a difficult road, and yet by their faithfulness are glorious. 
Now, if you are here, maybe you've heard various interpretations of this passage as, okay, in the future, there's going to be two literal kind of angelic witnesses or human witnesses, and they're going to have literal fire come out of their mouths and like be dragons and be shooting people down and preach the gospel. Um, and as a 12-year-old, when you read Revelation, that's also the part you're like, I'll be these guys. This is great. Fire mouth. That's awesome. Now, I'm going to give you a few reasons why I think Revelation itself tells us that these two witnesses actually are meant to represent the church. During the time of the turmoil uh, all around us in the world, this is meant to be a picture of the church, I believe from Jesus' ascension to his return. A couple reasons. First, notice that they're identified as the two lampstands. Now, if you've been in our series, you remember in Revelation 1, the lampstands were explicitly identified as the churches. Jesus walks among the lampstands, meeting the seven churches, and then in case we're a little dense, Jesus literally says, the lampstands are the churches. Tracking? And we're like, I don't, what do you mean? No, they're, they're the churches. Very clear. Now, second point of clarity, verse 7, where it says uh, that, the, that the beast was allowed to make war on the witnesses and conquer them, is repeated nearly word for word in chapter 13, which concerns the beast. And chapter 13 says this, the beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. So the two two verses actually are like parallel. The only difference is in one place they're called, it it talks about the two witnesses. In one place it talks about the saints. Now, third, these witnesses don't do anything that should surprise us if we've listened to Jesus and what he says about the church, meaning that the witnesses are to witness faithfully, they'll be protected, they will die, and they will rise again. That's what Jesus says repeatedly about the Christian and the church. Now, it is possible that these two witnesses really perhaps will be real figures at the end of history, but if that's the case, they're merely a culmination of the work of the church throughout the generations leading up to Christ's return. So either way, whether they're symbolic or whether they, there really will be two witnesses, but those two witnesses are simply going to fulfill in kind of grander style the pattern of the church, the, the message of the passage is the same. So if you're reading this in the first century, you're reading this and you're thinking, that's us. That's our path. That's the path of God's people. Now, uh, What you should notice also is that this path is not just the path of Christ's people, but the path of Christ himself. Look at this terrible illustration I've drawn. i got to do at least one of these uh, uh, a week so you guys feel better about your handwriting and or drawing. Okay, so here's what we got. We have Jesus. What does Jesus do? He witnesses, and then what does he do? He suffers and dies, and then what? He's resurrected to life and to glory. And over on the right-hand side, there's Jesus' church. And we're looking at that pattern, and we're going, but that's you, right, Jesus? Is there a kind of a path where we could go from Jesus' church to glory without the other stuff? Is that, a, is that an option? And no, Revelation 11 actually says we are to see the path of Jesus, in a sense, as the path of every Christian as a path of the church. Please take that away. Uh, Main point of the passage today is this. Follow the faithful witness, Jesus, 
on the path from suffering to glory. That's the call today. Follow the faithful witness on the path from suffering to glory. We're going to look at this in three parts. First, the task of every Christian is witness. Now, verse 3, remember Revelation is meant to reveal. And it says in verse 3, I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy. And the way that they're dressed in the sackcloth is a, is a throwback to the Old Testament prophets. Um, and they're, 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 they've been given a commission by the Lord. They're, they're prophecy. What that means is they're speaking the words of God to others. And their task is, let's not overcomplicate this, witnesses. In fact, there are two of them because in the Old Testament, two witnesses are needed to establish a testimony. So in a sense, they're, they're two witnesses witnessing Witnessing. The text, that's what it feels like. These guys are witnesses. They're going to witness. They are witnessing. Do you see them witnessing? And why is that helpful? Because it clarifies the task of the church. In fact, this is very parallel to Acts 1.8 where Jesus says to the church, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my, what? Witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So these witnesses, whether they're fully symbolic or perhaps are going to be culminated in two figures, they're just doing what Jesus has told the church to do. And I find this so helpful and so clarifying for us as Christians. I don't know about you, but I I read news headlines or scroll through Twitter, and I just think, what in the world? What am I supposed to do? There's, there's war here, there's famine here, there's disaster here, there's fire here, there's corruption in the school district here, there's a, there's a, a corruption in my workplace here. There's it's just all this stuff going on all around me. And we're wondering, man, what, what, what do we do? What are we supposed to do? We're meant to witness. And what does that mean? It, it simply means, and, and we're meant to prophesy in the biblical sense, meaning we're to speak the word of God, speak the gospel and the truth of the word to all that will hear. And our own lives being changed like the demoniac who is freed, and he wants to go with Jesus, and Jesus says, no, go home and tell your friends how much the Lord has done for you. That's what we're to do. We're simply to speak of what the Lord has done in our lives. And this, look, in every age, there are, there are good things for the church, capital C, to be involved in. You know, helping those, mercy ministry, you know, various kinds of things. But, but one of the things we can't lose hold of is in our, in our view of the church, there is one utterly, utterly unmissable task, which is the proclamation of the word of God in faithfulness. Romans chapter 10 says this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never Heard and how are they to hear without someone preaching? Meaning, this the the church in every age speaking the word of the gospel, and yes, yes, adorning the gospel with good works, as it says in Titus. But that primary unmissable thing, the proclamation of the gospel, is what creates and advances the church. That is the one thing we cannot drop from generation to generation. How are they to hear without someone preaching? And let me just say this. I, I, I think there is a commendable um, 
sort of zeal, if you're like, let's just say under 35 or 30, for doing good works, for, for seeing the way the, the, the world is broken around us as Christians and saying, oh, these, there's poverty here, there's disease, and, and those are good things. We are meant to do good works, to serve the poor, to, to, to help those in need. Amen. But, but my concern for especially the next generation is that often the crucial thing becomes showing mercy. And when a, even a good thing replaces the gospel, we have lost it because the gospel is the essential and critical call of the church in every age. Now, I, I want you to get this for a second. So witness is the task of the Christian. Now, but you're probably thinking, okay, well, so what do you want me to go down to San Jacinto Plaza and, and, and just stand there and hope fire comes out of my mouth and burns up my enemies? Like, what are, what are you telling me to do here? No, witness is the call of every Christian in many ways, in every area of life. Think about this. In, in marriage, what, do, what are you doing in marriage? Well, in marriage, according to Ephesians 5, the husband and wife are pictures of Christ in the church. And every marriage tells the drama of redemption to those who have eyes to see it. So that means, I don't know if this happened to you, after you get married and there's that one perfect week or maybe one perfect month or one perfect year, and then, then you wake up and you look at your spouse and go, you didn't seem this grumpy before, you know? You, you, do, have you always been doing that? Why are you leaving that on the floor? You know, like, and, or perhaps more importantly, you know, well, you said that I could do this job. Well, we never agreed. I don't like when you talk to our kid that way. Well, maybe you should try talking to your kid at all, right? We, we start to devolve into that. What does Jesus call us to do? In those moments where you're like, I don't know if I love my, I don't feel the love for my spouse. I don't know if they feel the love for me. Our call is to be a picture of Christ in the church and to reconcile and lay our lives down for them, as we'll see. What, what, what is parenting? I, I, I will admit, moms, this is a weird passage for Mother's Day. Um, if you brought your mom today and you're like, I bet Ricky's going to do Proverbs 31 or just, you know, something nice. And now we're, we've got people turning water into blood and death. But here, here really where I think, I, I do have a burden to encourage moms today. Uh, moms, you, you feel so many voices. You face so many different kinds of information coming to you. You, you got to do school with your kids this way. You got to parent your kids this way. You know, you're watching Instagrams of uh, you know, videos of perfect moms who they, they're growing their own corn and their chickens are laying their own eggs and they, they're making organic butter and they, you know, they're frying up pancakes while one of their kids plays Beethoven on the piano and you're just like, <sighs> you know. Or maybe you're on the other extreme, and you see some kid who, you know, that kid, you see, you tell at age seven, he's a Division I college athlete, you know? <laughs> we were at soccer yesterday. There was one kid that you're like, yeah, man, he's like two heads taller than everybody else, and he's scoring from midfield, and so just, just draft him now. It's, you know, take him to Europe now. And you feel these things. Moms, I want to encourage you. Your task is not easy, but it is simple. And it is straightforward. And it's not turning your son or daughter into Division I athlete. It's not teaching them a perfect, you know, classical music uh, repertoire. It's faithfully witnessing to your kids. That when you really want to get angry, you ask the Lord for help. Or when you do get angry, you go to your kids and apologize. 
It's faithfully speaking bits of the gospel, taking the little kid's ministry paper and asking your kids about it, or opening up the word during the week. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be perfect. But, but, but just that simplicity of being a faithful witness, acting like you're following Jesus, as Chuck was sharing in his story. Follow Jesus. Talk about Jesus. That's your call. And, and, and let me just mention briefly that this applies to vocation as well. What are you trying to do? You're not just trying to make it to payday and, and, and clock out. You're, you're trying to be a witness for Jesus wherever he has you. Your, your Facebook presence, your Twitter presence, your Instagram presence is not just there for fun. It's meant in some sense to be a witness. And, and this is the call. But there will be opposition, right? There will be opposition. You, you see these people coming against them, but then they're protected. So what in the world does that mean? What? We get to the fire and the blood part. Well, verse 5, the fire, if you know your Old Testament, references the prophetic ministry of Elijah, right? Where he's speaking the word of God and, and the prophets of Baal are there and fire comes down from heaven, right? And, and, and then in verse 6, there's references to the prophetic ministry of Moses. He's speaking these things in Egypt and, and the Lord is doing signs and wonders. What is all this supposed to mean? Well, well, notice this. Their task is to witness and out of their mouth comes fire and, and out of their mouth these things are happening in the heavens. What does it mean? It means this, that as we proclaim the church, as we proclaim the word of God, it is accompanied with the power of God for our protection. It is not just our words, like we're out there in the town square, hey, have you thought about Jesus? No, the word of God goes forth with power. It is unleashed when we speak it. It silences people. It, it brings people from death to life. And some who, who refuse Christ, it confirms them being, being put away from Christ, right? And in this way... We wonder, okay, well, we've got the word of God. That's helpful, but I still feel weak in my witness. Oh, that's where uh, that little detail in verse 4 about the two olive trees and the two lampstands is so critical. The olive trees, right, the olive trees were often what made the oil for the lamps. And the olive trees are in the Old Testament often a, a symbol of the Spirit of God. So what is it saying? It's saying this, that the church will blaze out the hope of the gospel, but that, that blazing out of the gospel is going to be lit, in a sense, by the power of the Spirit. So it's not as though we're like, oh, I don't think I could do this task. It's too hard. No, the Lord sends us out with his living Spirit, with his living Word, and says, go speak. It may be hard. It may be difficult. But that's the call. I love the, the resilience of the two little hobbits as they make their way to Mordor. There's a quote that I love um, from, from Tolkien. He says, One tiny hobbit against all the evil the world could muster. A sane being would have given up, but Samwise burned with a magnificent madness. A glowing obsession to surmount every obstacle, to find Frodo, to destroy the ring, to cleanse Middle Earth of its festering malignancy. He knew he would try again. Fail, perhaps, try once more, a thousand, thousand times if need be, but he would not give up the quest. This is what I think we see in the witnesses. They, they are just out there continuing on the path God has for them again and again with the power of the Spirit and the power of the Word. Second, the path of every Christian, death. 
Happy Mother's Day. You're just like, man, this is getting, it's getting better and better. Uh, all right, verse 7. This is going to be encouraging, I promise, but you guys stick with me. Verse 7, and when they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them. And you're thinking, okay, and then they're going to win. And they're going to beat that beast. No. And conquer them and kill them. And it goes on to talk about the, the, their bodies lying in the street and the world you know, against Christ rejoicing. Now, you're probably wondering, okay, well, I'm really hoping you're going to say that's at the end of history too, right? Like that's going to, you know, not going to happen to me. Well, it could be that in the end the church will have a moment where it seems decisively defeated only to rise again. Or this could simply be an ongoing pattern throughout world history. But the point is the same. The path of every faithful witness is in opposition to the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And often they will seem to win. Now, the primary application here is the world's opposition, but there is a sense I want us to get that following Jesus in every area of life will be a kind of death. Following Christ involves suffering, sometimes suffering through a fallen world, suffering through persecution, suffering through opposition, suffering through denying our own desires for the sake of Christ. But hear the word of the Lord today, verse uh, Matthew 16, 24, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Peter, who took up his cross and followed Jesus, tells us this, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad at his glory. Or Paul the Apostle, on the road of Christ, says this, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel, for the power of God. Now look, here's what we have to remember the path. Christ's example is that he suffered for us. You remember that reference there? Their bodies will lie out in the street in the same city symbolically, the same city of worldly opposition, as their Lord did. Meaning this, the road that the witnesses walk has already been walked by Christ. And in fact, there's a real sense in which he walked the road into suffering and death much further than a, they will ever walk. In the midst of encouraging those suffering in 1 Peter, um, the Apostle Peter talks about various kinds of suffering, but then he, he, he inserts this phrase, Christ also suffered once for sins that he might bring us to God. Meaning this, suffering is never meaningless for the Christian. Suffering, in fact, is the means by which God advances his plan for the redemption of many. It, it is a beautiful and glorious 
thing. Look, and if you don't know Jesus, this is probably a strange message, but, but I think you're seeing the gospel as it really is. The, the gospel offer is this. Anyone from anywhere at any time who's done anything can call on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Maybe you've heard that call, but, but accompanied with that call is Jesus saying, if anyone would come after me, take up your cross and follow me. All you must do to be brought to God is trust in what Christ has done in suffering once for sins that he might bring you to God. But you have to also see the road of following Jesus. Like, I, I'm not going to tell you the road of following Jesus is going to be a bunch of unicorns and rainbows and just care bears singing songs. The road of following Jesus is Jesus' road. But as you'll see, it is glorious. Now, I, I just want to want to point out something here very briefly. I wish I could, we could say much more about this. I'm working with a biblical counselor, um, and one of the things my biblical counselor has been talking about is I've had a number of issues in my life of, that involve suffering over the last two years, uh, some physical, you know, other, other things as well. And he, made, he said this the other day, and I've, I just, it's stuck in my mind, and it's this. That the gospel means that for the Christian, suffering is turned into glory. Meaning this, that if what Jesus did, if him suffering is the means by which he saved us and brought us to a future and a hope, that's the path we walk. And no bit of suffering is meaningless or pointless. Look, if you are in a difficult spot in your marriage fighting to love your spouse, hear the call of Christ. Sometimes we're like, man, hey, I would be happy to be martyred for the Christian faith. You know, send me to the the Middle East or a closed country. I'll do it where I gotta be strong for an hour, but rebuilding your marriage is gonna take months or years. You're like, oh, I... It's too hard. It's too much death. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you. Follow the path of Christ. Maybe you're struggling with, it, with a child and, and they're wayward and, and it's difficult to have hope that God will ever do anything and you, there's a daily kind of suffering that comes with that. Take comfort. You're not on the wrong road. Through that, Jesus can work powerfully and gloriously. Maybe you, you, you're struggling with chronic pain or depression or something that dogs you, that, that your victory of the day, I was talking to somebody in the first service, and they just said, my victory for the day when I was fighting depression was getting out of bed. Like, there's a sense in which that is true suffering, and when we do it with the help of Christ, it is glorious. Now, we can't end there. That is not the end. I want to show you the end of every Christian. The path of every Christian is witness. I mean, the, path, the, the task of every Christian is witness. The path of every Christian is death. And the end of every Christian is glory. Verse 11, but after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Yeah, I bet. When you kill somebody, leave their body in the street for a while... It is alarming to have them get up. (laughs) Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud. And their enemies watched them. Oh, church. The end of the Christian path is not in despair, but glory. 
The end of the Christian path is not loss, but gain. The end of the Christian path is not darkness, but light. The end of the Christian path is not suffering, but glory. Right? And notice the time stamps. Right? These time stamps are symbolic, but they witness for a long time, suffer for a short time, and live forever with Christ. Like, get, get the times right, because it may feel like those three and a half days of dying to yourself are endless. They are not. They will be a snap in all of eternity. But this, this, this is what I believe the Lord meant to fix in the eyes of the church in Revelation 2 and 3. Those seven churches uh, is experiencing more and more opposition, wondering what will happen to us. Some of them have even been killed. What will we do? Jesus wants them to see your task. Your task is simple. Stay faithful. Witness. I will protect you. I will give you the power. You will die. But then you will live forever. Look, this, this, is, this is summed up in a beautiful scene in, uh, in, from Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings where in the midst of a very difficult time on the road, we read this. There, peeping among the clouds above a dark mountain high up in the sky, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. And the beauty of it smote his heart. As he looked up out of the forsaken land, hope returned to him. Christian, I believe there's some of you that the Lord is, he intends this morning for hope to enter your soul again. Continues, for like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and a high beauty forever beyond its reach. Look, this is what Revelation is meant to do. We're to look ahead to that bright, shining moment when the Lord rumbles across the earth, come up here. And in that moment, we go from death to life. Look, we don't, we don't fully get this. They're drawing on the imagery of Ezekiel chapter 37, where, where Ezekiel, he sees a valley of dry bones, and it's like, it's, it's hopeless. That is the state of God's people. They are dead. Their bones are dried up and scorched. And God tells him, speak to the bones. And he does, and they rise, and this is what the Lord says. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. And then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. Look, the picture in their mind is Ezekiel 37 as their bodies are reformed, and they stand up. 
Church, this, this is the glorious pattern set by the Lamb of God himself. Remember Revelation 5 where, where it says this. Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. You see the contrast of conquering? The beast conquers them and goes, ha ha, we got them. They're dead. That's it. Game over. But the beast does not know that the lamb's conquering is eternal. And, the, and, and, and look at the, the contrast between the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered, and you expect to see a lion, but verse 6 says, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Meaning this, for Christ, the conquering is in the slaying. The slaying is the path to his ultimate conquering, and the same is true for the Christian. We may die daily, but in that death, as those thousand tiny deaths a day as we die to ourselves and live for him, we conquer. And the Lord holds out for us the hope of what happens when we conquer again and again in Revelation 2 and 3. I hope you're seeing this in your community group. To Ephesus, to him who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To Sardis, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father. To Laodicea, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Do you see the pattern, church? The gospel turns suffering into glory, because it is in our dying, in our suffering, that we conquer just as Christ Dead. So this is the effect I wanted to have today in the church. Church, rise and conquer. But our conquering is not the conquering of the world. It's not a marshalling of armies. It is a husband and wife crying and praying yet again that the Lord would reconcile them. It is a guy struggling with drug addiction and, and, and praying and seeking help and dying every day to that desire. It is the person who is single, who so longs to be with someone and every Christmas dreads the, the question, why haven't you found someone getting up and saying to themselves again and again and again, Christ is sufficient. When the world says, you're stunted, better at least be with somebody for the night and the Christian says No. Look, this is the conquering of the church in a thousand ways, in a thousand places. That's why I respect the church so much. And this is how the gospel advances. Look, years ago, there was some, I'll end with this. There was somebody that, that was asking me, what, what's the secret of your church growth? You know, it was a pastor at a pastor's meeting. I didn't know him well, but I was just describing, you know, we had, we'd gone from probably a couple hundred people to over 400 people in just a few years. And he's like, man, what, what's your secret? And I knew what he was asking for. He was asking, like, what was your evangelism plan? Or what did you guys do? Or did you, you know, did you brighten up the auditorium? Or are the chairs more comfortable? What, what is it? Do you start quoting cool people in your sermons? Like, no, I quote Johnny Cash and Tolkien. And so that's <laughs> definitely not it. Is it the drawings? It's definitely not the drawings. So, but I can tell what he was after. That's funny. The Lord brought something to mind. Because we, we, we did several things. We, people were faithful in different areas. But what I felt, I felt the Lord put on my heart to tell him was, you know how we went from an inwardly focused church to a more outwardly focused church? I mean, we're still in process. You know how we went from inward to outward? 
two guys in our church got cancer. One of our worship leaders named Danny, one of our leaders named Todd. And through that, as they walked through it, Todd would wear a Pick Jesus shirt with a guitar pick because he went to MD Anderson, which is the cheesiest evangelism I can imagine. But tons of people asked him about the shirt, so it was obviously effective, and the Lord rebuked me. And, the, and he had so many conversations, and he had a mailing list that he was giving updates to of people that don't know Jesus, and he's just clearly preaching about the hope of Jesus. And Danny going to his office again and again. I remember the, Danny's last day, John Vogan was there, and we just leading worship around him. And people were coming and hearing about Jesus just the way they had through his whole trial. And I truly believe, church, in those years, something changed inside of us. Not because we painted the auditorium. Not because our flyers to the neighborhood were better. Because two guys who looked death in the eye said, Christ is enough. Jesus is my life. And conquered. And conquered. So this is my heart for our church, that, that we not lose the pattern and, and let me just encourage you, if you're a Christian, probably one of those three parts that we talked about today is hard for you. Maybe you just feel downcast. You see the hard road of witness. You see the death. You don't see the end. Oh, could I just encourage you? Look, look to the bright star. Look to Christ. Look to the day the voice says, come up here, and every tear will be wiped away. Maybe what you don't see is the faithfulness here on earth. Maybe you're just a Christian. You're just trying to bide your time and, you know, hang tight until, well, it's going to be hard. But then we'll go to heaven. There's no witness. Maybe what today Jesus is calling you to do is, is say witness. Speak about Jesus. Or maybe some of you, you, you like, okay, we've got Christian life. We've got heaven. I don't like the thing in the middle. Is there, a, is there like a route around the death part? This is where so many churches in America are at. We, we've, they've tried to find a route around the death part. Churches are like, oh, we don't talk about sin or death or hell or any of that stuff. It brings people down. We want to be an upbeat church. The suffering is where the glory is. So let me end with this. John 12, 24 says this. Truly, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In, in, in Sam and Frodo's last steps toward Mount Doom, they're talking about the great stories and wondering if they'll ever be in a great story. And so Sam starts talking about maybe people will be in a great story someday. Nobody really wants to be in a great story because they're really hard. People just like to hear about the great stories. But we are in a great story. And so maybe someday people will talk about us even though it seems hopeless. And Frodo says, why, Sam, to hear you somehow makes me as merry as if the story were already written. And Christian, for us, the story is already written. It ends in glory. 
Would you stand and let's pray? Lord, we, we pray that as we close with singing, God, that you, you would do a work in our hearts. Lord, we're all in one of those places today where, where maybe what we're not seeing is the hope at the end. So I pray for the downcast Christian that you would fill them, fill them with the Spirit, God. Point them to that bright, shining moment. Maybe some aren't seeing that the task of faithfulness, and you're calling them to take up that task in their marriage, in their parenting, in their workplace, in their neighborhood, in their city. Maybe some aren't seeing the hardness of the road, and they're, and they're feeling like, man, I'm suffering. I must be off the path. This is wrong, right? Pray that you would encourage them and breathe life into them. Until the day our faith is sight. Amen.